All right, so uh, we are going through, a, you should have an outline in front of you called, uh, at the top it should say, Rediscovering and Restoring Biblical Christianity Series, WSU version. And uh, I probably won't be able, for the sake of the new people, to review too much or else we won't get anything done. We, we try to get done by 8.30 or so. Last year we kept spilling over to 9.15, 10 o'clock, things like that. And so we're trying not to do that this year. Um, and uh, so the Rediscovering and Restoring Biblical Christianity series is, is based on the idea that American Christianity is, is not very biblical, even though we think we are. And so it's kind of a, you know, searching the whole scriptures to see what would it take to get back to the biblical patterns and biblical models for the church, for conversion, for all kinds of things. So uh, with that, there's 15 major emphases uh, in the scriptures that we're doing a rethink on and then a rebuild. Like, so the, you know, the re rediscovering or rethinking is the idea of let's dig through the scriptures from cover to cover and re-examine uh, these major topics. And um, um, you know, the people who've been at the Bible study have a list of those 15 on a separate sheet. And uh, then of course we want to re, uh, you know, you know, Jesus said new wine has to be put into new wineskins. We want to restore these things. You know, we have a saying here, theology must become incarnational. Uh, in other words, the word has to become flesh, not only in our individual lives, but in our life as a community of Christians. And so uh, the uh, first emphasis, hi Kyle, how are you today? So, first emphasis we studied is it was about loving God. The second emphasis, what it means to love God, because love has become a very nebulous concept, and the Bible gives a lot of definition to what love really is. Um, then we looked at uh, the idea of grace upon grace, uh, because so many uh, approaches to God in our in our culture are performance based rather than grace based. Then we looked at let's see if I can remember what number three was the church. And uh, we looked at all kinds of things about the biblical church and the pattern thereof and uh, word pictures of the church and so forth. Then we looked at uh, New Testament leadership terms and how New Testament leadership is supposed to be raised up within the church and, and how, it, how it should function and, you know, what shepherds, teachers, apostles, prophets are and how they function and all that. And then uh, lastly... Last year, we spent the whole year just on uh, how to restore all, the whole Bible as the Word of God and how to study the whole Bible as one, one uh, message from one God uh, that's uh, what we would call an accurate, infallible, uh, inerrant historical narrative. Uh, the Bible tells a story, but it's not a fictional story. It's, uh, it's an infallible, inerrant story. And so... Uh, this year, we are starting on uh, the concept of the kingdom of God, which we spent a week or two talking about how uh, that's the central idea of the Bible. Uh, Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God more than he spoke about anything else. Uh, Paul spoke about the kingdom of God. Peter spoke about the kingdom of God. And the entire idea of the Old Testament is, is about God's people being his special treasure and his unique possession uh, to be by grace chosen to be his kingdom and uh, how the 
the world is a, is a clash of kingdoms in what the church is supposed to be about. A lot of modern Christianity has a very negative view of what's going to happen in the future. It's going to get darker and darker and darker. We think the implications of Christ's resurrection and his ascension and his glorification are that the kingdom is present and it's expanding and that it needs to expand in us. We need to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all things will be added to us. And, uh, and as uh, it expands in us, we uh, need to uh, learn how to effectively ex export it through uh, evangelism and discipleship and uh, pastoral care and building Christian community. So uh, anyway, uh, so what we do is when we read verses, we, we tend to go around in a circle and just read them. I'll, I'll uh, not pick on you guys at first, so I'll let Daniel, Daniel start with, uh, and then Kyle do some of our theme verses there on the outline real, real quick. Yeah, just read them off the page for the sake of time since we've already done them three times. Matthew 6, 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All right, Kyle. Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So um, sometimes you'll see, uh, if, if it doesn't note what translation it's from, it's from the New American Standard Bible, which I have a tendency to think is the most accurate, and I study a lot of Greek. So uh, if it, uh, however... Uh, some cases, it's it's uh, certainly useful to look at other English translations. So in that case, uh, at hand uh, is noted as from the New American Standard Bible, the English Standard Version, the Geneva, the King James, the RSV, and the New King James. All of which are are the there's three philosophies of English translating the Bible. Uh, all of those are what's called literal equivalent philosophy, and then uh, come nigh is uh, Wy Wycliffe and Young's literal translation, which are both also a literal equivalence, and is near as New Living Translation and New NET, which are dynamic equivalence translations, if you know the, a lot about the different types of translations and what that yields. Um, the Greek word engizo uh, is to make near approach be at hand. So Jesus is saying the very first thing he says in his public ministry is the kingdom of God is right here, right now, in me. All right, so Jonathan, you want to give us the next one there? Matthew 12, 28. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Right. Now, we're not going to get into casting out demons much or anything like that tonight. Uh, however, most Christians don't experience that much, and Jesus, over one quarter to one third of his ministry, was casting out demons. And so how can, you, how can Christians not do that? Um, you know, to, to not do that is to say you've you got to deal with the fact that Jesus spent a third of his ministry doing that. And uh, so was he just accommodating himself to the psychological backwardness of his day? And so now that we have modern psychology, we don't have to believe in such things. That would be to say Jesus was wrong. And therefore, how can we worship him as our God and King? So, um, you know, uh, that's, so that is something we do at Rock Campus Fellowship and Grace Christian Fellowship. However, because of the shallowness of TV, Christianity, and so forth, we mostly do that in private counseling sessions after uh, some preparation and stuff like that. But it is something we do. I've probably cast demons out of more than 1,000 people in the last 43 years. So, uh, And many, many great testimonies of life change, even, even some people in this room. Right, Stephen? All right. So uh, that was a game changer for you. 
Um, so who, John Lukey or Josh, I guess, next. next. Right, so that kind of points to the fact the primary theme of both Matthew and Luke is, is Jesus is standing on the shoulders of all the prophets of the Old Testament. He's saying the same message they said. He's, he's uh, ministering in the same power of the Holy Spirit that they ministered to, and he's proclaiming the same Father and the same covenant, and he's proclaiming that God's people have been unfaithful to the covenant and it's a covenant lawsuit against Jude, uh, Jerusalem and Judea. And he's saying, I'm going to take the kingdom from you now, and I'm going to give it to a nation producing the fruit of it, which is supposed to be the church. And uh, uh, although the church hasn't always done that. So um, that's kind of the whole point of Matthew and Luke. Uh, we, you know, we don't have time to go into all that tonight. But we will cover that in this series, on the, you know, in this particular year on the kingdom of God. Uh, we will kind of look at, uh, you know, when Jesus, it kind of culminates after Jesus gives the eight woes against Jerusalem in Matthew 23, then in Matthew 23, 37 through 39, he stands over Jerusalem and he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I have wanted to gather you under my wings like a mother hen gathers a chick. Hi, Chris. And, uh, but you would not have it. And uh, then he uh, basically says, Behold, your, your house is left to you desolate. He proclaims that over the temple. The word desolate there is the Septuagint, the Old Testament uh, Greek version of Ichabod, if you remember who Ichabod was, uh, which means no glory. He's saying, I'm withdrawing my presence from the temple I'm going to dwell in a new temple, which he, of course, John chapter 1 says that he tabernacled, templed among us. He was the temple of God, and now the church is the temple of God. And so uh, he's uh, predicting that he's about to destroy Jerusalem, and he says, you won't see me again. In other words, you won't be able to perceive Jesus correctly until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. For all of us, there will be uh, someone who comes in the name of the Lord at some time and knocks on our door and uh, whatever and knocks on the door of our heart or circumstances, situations, people. And our response to Jesus is our response to the people he sends to us. And so um, he's saying, you're not going to perceive me again until you can say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that principle is still works today, of course. Um, and then the disciples say, start pointing out the beauty of the temple and so forth and he begins to tell them that the roman armies are going to surround the city and the temple not one stone will be torn you know uh, modern christians have turned that into something about the end times but it's clearly about the destruction of jerusalem because he says this generation will not pass away till everything i'm saying is fulfilled and a generation biblically is 40 years and all that happened before 70 a.d the finished culminating in 70 a.d all right, so who's got the next one? John, Luke, that would be...
Right, so in that phrase, in your midst, is actually a different Greek word than when he says it, uh, the kingdom of God is, is uh, at hand in Matthew 4, 17. Uh, that word is entos, or entas, I should say, uh, which means within you. Now, many false uh, religions have interpreted that to mean that, he, that Jesus is saying that God is, live, God is in every person or something like that. He's not saying that. He's saying that to his disciples, uh, to those who know God, who've received Christ as King, Lord, God, Savior, to those who have received his atonement, to those who've been fully converted to him. Uh, to them, the kingdom of God has started to live within them. And uh, as, the, as you grow in sanctification and maturation, uh, you should be growing in the, the kingdom of God being manifest in your life. Because the kingdom of God is a place where a king, uh, his reign is done willingly and so forth. Uh, let's see. Do you want, what, what's your name, ma'am? Hannah. Do you want to read Revelation eleven fifteen there? Okay, of course, there's lots of different, there's five different theories, uh, basic, basic broad schools of thought about how to interpret Revelation, so we're not going to get into that tonight, but we will get into that in this, in this Kingdom of God uh, stuff in uh, weeks to come, probably next semester. All right, so uh, then we started on 12 statements about the Kingdom of God. I just want to remind us that we got through five of these so far. Um, what I'd like to do, though, is re just go right down the row in uh, U5, beginning with Byron and ending with Jonathan, can just read them. I'm going to try not to comment any more on them since we talked about each of these for, you know, it took us two weeks to do these five. We talked about them so much. So hopefully uh, those of you who were here will remember some of uh, the things about it. Now, this is probably, as you know, uh, like if you were there Sunday morning, uh, we started off with a scripture reading that included about 20 scriptures and before the message even started. And, you know, sometimes uh, I get accused of using too much scripture, which is ironic in Bible-believing Christians, but uh, not by our church, thankfully. But uh, uh, there's probably less scriptures to back up these points than I normally would, but we will be doing that the rest of the year. The, the reason is, is really these, are, these statements are the Bible in summary. These are all the scriptures. This is the message of the whole Bible. So uh, in a few cases, we did add some scriptures, and we discussed those the last couple weeks, if you remember. So go ahead, Byron, read number one. Good. Um, Jonathan, actually, why don't you, uh, yeah, well, let's skip over and you do number five. So, by the way, you should recognize those, uh, the words I put in quotes there, special treasure and the people for his own possession are both Exodus 19, five and six. And he's, and first uh, Peter quotes those verses in first Peter two, nine. Hopefully you would have those memorized by now. Those are pretty important verses. Jonathan, number five. 
All right. So uh, we, you know, made the point. We did all those scripture verses with number five last week. Uh, but one of the points we made is that uh, the Romans 14, 17, for instance, says the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And after the kingdom of God is, the next three are all parenthetical statements. So the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy. It would be, you could take that and let it stand alone. Uh, you could take the kingdom of God is not meat and drink and let it stand alone. The kingdom of God is in the Holy Spirit. And you can let, take that stand alone. So by definition, wherever the kingdom is making, the, the reason Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then know that the kingdom of God is among you. Wherever there truly is the, the real Trinity, the real Holy Spirit, where the, the person of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is active and present by the person and power and ministry of the Holy Spirit, there will be clashes of kingdoms. And, you know, we kind of uh, have sort of a middle-class, mediocre Christianity today where we don't expect much conflict with our family or with uh, secular schools. Or, but, you know, there's, the kingdom of God is, is actually about a clash of kingdoms. And when Jesus came into situations filled with the Holy Spirit, demons freaked out and said, I know who you are. And, uh, uh, you know, we could share testimonies, but I've had hundreds of experiences like that where uh, demons were, you know, intimidated or whatever because they knew that the Spirit of God was present. And so there, there is a clash of kingdoms, and by definition, Christianity has to be spiritual, that is supernatural, or we've reduced it to a Greek-Roman worldview, which is just doctrinal theoretical. And today people want to size each other up by their doctrine and their theology and da-da-da-da-da, but it's just abstract conceptual. If there's no power, if there's no uh, radically changed lives, if there's no miracles, if there's no healings, if there's no deliverances, then there's no actual presence of God. By definition, where the Holy Spirit is made manifest, there will, and we live in a very natural-minded time. 1 Corinthians 2, the whole chapter, is about how the natural-minded man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. And uh, so, this, you know, uh, those who are led by the Holy Spirit are the sons of God, Romans 8 says. And uh it, those who are led by the Holy Spirit, we should see the kinds of activities that Jesus uh, talked about. In, J in John chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16 is John's account of the Last Supper. Uh, the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, give us mostly Jesus at the Last Supper giving us the communion meal, uh, predicting Judas' betrayal of him, and he predicts both uh, Simon Peter's denial of him and that he will restore Simon Peter. Right? When you've turned again, strengthen your brethren. So, but John doesn't cover any of that. John starts with Jesus washing the disciples' feet and goes on to Jesus teaching them the last things because he's about to go be with the Father. So he teaches them that I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. In my father's family is what the Greek means in John 14, are many dwelling places. It's not about heaven. It's about the body of Christ in, li in the temple, living in the temple of God in this life. And he's in, in, uh, there's many places to fit in and many callings and functions in the body of Christ. 
And then he begins to talk about the Holy Spirit. He talks more about the Holy Spirit there than anywhere else in the Bible because he's going to continue his ministry just as he's always done it by the person, power, and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so, uh, you know, we're to expect, if, if we're really walking with Christ, it should look like Jesus. You know, there should be demons scared of us. There should be changed lives. You know, there's encounters like Zacchaeus. Uh, you know, he, he uh, is so interested in seeing Jesus, and he's a short guy, so he climbs up in a sycamore tree. And Jesus, uh, by the Holy Spirit, calls him by name. There's no evidence they ever met. The Holy Spirit gave Jesus the name. And uh, that, that kind of thing happens all the time to people who walk by the power of the Spirit. I'll never forget my friend Uam Johnson, a guy from Nigeria that came to Christ in our Bowling Green ministry back in about 1980, 81, something like that. And uh, he was just filled with the Spirit a few weeks, and we were out uh, sharing the gospel, and he asked uh, a guy his name, and the guy lied. And, the guy, and Uam said, that's not your name, you're lying. And then he told him what his name was, and the guy said, you're right. You know, and he had he had his attention after that. So I I remember I was uh, witnessing once to a a backslidden Christian, and we were working together downtown Cleveland, and we were riding down from we lived out in the suburbs of Cleveland, and we were riding downtown every day together. And while I'm talking to him about Jesus and the resurrection and the power of the Holy Spirit his radiator started to boil over and the, the uh, steam started coming up and the needle was on hot. And uh, I was a young Christian and I didn't even think about it. It just blurted out of me. I said, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you not to boil over. The steam stopped, the needle went down and his mouth popped open and I had his attention after that. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, so God does these things there. They should be biblically normative. Uh, the problem is not with God. The problem was with our culture of unbelief in our day and age, in the natural-minded cult, Western culture that we live in. So, all right. Uh, so let's keep going. Let's have John Bradbury read number six, and now we'll go back to discussing them, although it would be nice if we finish tonight, but we'll see. <laughs> I, I didn't expect to spend four weeks on just this one outline. Yeah, if the Lord wills. <laughs> That's funny. Ultimately, all of God's actions, movements, works, and dealings are designed to produce that nation and work in and through it to subdue the entire earth and manifest his glory. This involves the reproduction of children born of his spirit and producing his character, fruit, and works. Whenever God calls an individual, it is always for this larger corporate purpose. Life poured out expendable. All right, now, um, we're going to look at some of these scriptures in a minute, but, a minute, minute, but let's uh, look at the word subdue. You know, remember in Genesis 1.26, what was Adam commissioned to do? What is the, sometimes that Genesis 1.26 is called what, there's a name for the covenant that it is. There's a couple different names. Adamic covenant or the covenant with Adam. The dominion mandate or the dominion covenant, right? Those are the most common sometimes also called the cultural mandate, all right? To be fruitful, to multiply, to subdue the earth, right? But what does God mean by subdue? Take over. 
Right. So somebody, for instance, somebody mentioned prosperity today. And, uh, you know, America has this prosperity gospel thing. And, um, but God's idea of prosperity is not what, what the culture's idea of prosperity is, right? So uh, subdue, you're saying take over. Actually, read the last verse on the, on the previous page. Yeah, read it out loud. Yeah, Austin can. They said to him, Kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. It is not this way with you, but the one who prays among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like the servant. Right, so um, there's no manifestation of the kingdom in the Bible except on the other side of the cross. That's why I have kingdom and cross in parentheses there, just to remind me to talk about that. So what Jesus means by subdue is not what the world would mean by subdue, right? Worldly people like power and the accoutrements of power. I mean, if you even look at the Democratic and Republican parties of our culture, uh, it's kind of sick, right? Because people are after, it's about ego, it's about self-advancement, it's about becoming rich, right? Uh, I'm not any big fan of, say, liberal public television, but, uh, you know, uh, this uh, liberal show called Frontline did a, a very good special once on uh, do just documenting one politician after another, how rich they became by after they went to Washington as, as you know, House of Representatives, Senate, etc. And, uh, you know, uh, it's all about wealth, fame, power, right? Jesus... <laughs> Excuse me, got a cold today. Jesus is saying uh, a very different definition of what power is about, isn't he? Right? So who can tell me, I got in bold print there, John 13, 5 through 7. What's that about without going there? John Luke. Yeah, Jesus washing the disciples' feet, right? And we've often, you know, told the story that'd be a little bit like if some... Uh, you know, great and powerful person showed up at our little church of 110 people or so. And, uh, and uh, you know, like most churches, if it was, say, the president of the United States or whatever, uh, uh, or some, the king of England or the queen of England, I should say, uh, showed up at church, we'd uh, kind of want to give them a good seat or something and, you know, this kind of thing. But what if they said, no, just show me where the janitor's closet is, and they grabbed a bucket and uh, put some soap in it and start, went out to the parking lot and started washing cars. I mean, Jesus is the king of the universe. He created it by the word of his power. The uh, Colossians says that he upholds all things by the word of his power. In him, all the fullness of the deity dwells. Right? Jesus is, is God himself. And yet, he, uh, he washes their feet. Now, where does the why is that significant in in the culture he's living in? Morgan. Because back then they would have the sandals and they would get a lot of crap and stuff on their feet. So like the lowest of the servants would be the poor guys wash off the guest's feet when they came over, and they probably would be a very pleasant job. Right. Yeah. And G and the culture of of Judea at that time, and the culture of Galilee, which are the northern and southern part of what today is Israel, and in, in Jesus' time. Um, most people would bathe daily. 
But when you came to someone's house, if they were a person of some means, they would have one of their servants wash your feet. Because as she said, they were wearing sandals and they didn't have paved streets. Uh, they were full of animal dung and, you know, as she said, crap. She, she, she said crap, which, she, which could be taken literally in that particular instance. There would be real crap, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and litter and other kinds of crap, too. Uh, so it would be dirty. Your feet would be dirty, right? And so, like, the master of the house didn't wash your feet. In Hebrew culture, that would have been beneath his or her dignity, Right? but they would have a servant that would wash your feet, right? And Jesus is basically saying, I came to, not to, to be served, but to serve and to lay down my life, to give my life as a ransom for many. The ultimate service was that he died for our sins. Right? So that's pretty intense when you think about it. He's, you know, now it's interesting that in the Last Supper, Jesus does that first. Why does he do that first? Well, you would do that first when people came in, so that, that would be one reason. Set an example. Set an example. That's an even more important reason. Now we're moving up. So, yeah, because he says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right. Uh, but I do this as an example for you. And we've looked at the Greek word before for that. It means as a pattern, as a model. This is the pattern of what leadership is. Right? Now, is that how Herod exercised leadership? Pontius Pilate, you think he was washing the, you know, the feet of his soldiers? <laughs> I, I don't think so, Tim. All right, so uh, what's that? <laughs> so uh so that's so that's uh moving up to even a better answer so those are both good answers but there's one more that's even more important well that's kind of the same thing what, what was your first name again colin colin said um no, what's really important is he's about to teach them some of the most important things in the three and a half years he's discipled them. And he's about to tell them about the person, the ministry, and the power of the Holy Spirit and how his ministry is going to continue after his death, burial, and resurrection. After he goes to be with the Father, it's going to look just like it always has looked. But now it's going to look like that through the body of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's basically saying, I'm about to uh, give you the most amazing, you know, awesome power in the universe. And woe are you if you use it uh, the way the TV guys do to get more rich fame and have your $20 million houses <laughs> and so forth, right? What, don't, this, is, this is not something I'm giving you for self-advancement. This is a, I'm giving you the power of the Holy Spirit and the gifts and call of God are irrevocable. You don't necessarily lose them when you don't walk godly. Once you've begun to step into various gifts and so forth, the gifts and call of God are irrevocable. Right? So you better use them 
uh, to wash people's feet. It's very important that he sets that boundary first. Does everybody see that? That's really, really important. He, if, if, you, if God hasn't worked in your life to break you, humble you, sanctify you, so that you've really become a servant of those that he's given you charge for and care for, so, uh, you know, woe are you. That's why when we're discipling people, the first thing we, uh, you know, we make you chairman. We always, you know, that is you can set up the chairs, <laughs> right? Because uh, we want you to learn how to serve, right? In the 1 Corinthians 15, first the natural, then the spiritual, right? If you're going to serve... Uh, as God gives you more and more spiritual ways to serve and more and more responsibility, you can't afford to lose the spirit and attitude of being a servant. Do you know in the Anglican church, what do they ordain everybody first? If you become an ordained minister of the Anglican church, what are you ordained as 100% of the time? A deacon. And what is, where does the word deacon come from? Yeah, diakonos in the, in the New Testament, a deacon is a table waiter. Right, and one of the things that that uh, several uh, historical good Christian group denominations have stressed is that you're always a deacon first. If you be, no matter what you become, teacher, prophet, etc., first and foremost, you're a table waiter. You're a table waiter to King Jesus and to His people. Right, and uh, woe is us if we ever lose that spirit or attitude. That's cool stuff, right? That's important. It's not just cool to understand it. It's, you know, Jesus actually says, what does he say after he says, you call me teacher and Lord. And you, you, by the way, you can cheat. <laughs> you can look in the Bible yourself. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right. Right? And he says one more thing. If you know these things, you're happy as would be like a modern paraphrase. Blessed. Uh, would, uh, to be envied is what the Greek means, blessed. Yeah, you're blessed if you do these things, not if you just know them. I mean, it's, isn't it possible to know these things and not do them, right? You know, uh, by the grace of God, you know, I always knew I was called to teach God's word and so forth. So I spent the first five years after I became a Christian uh, in a church, and I took out the church trash on Tuesday nights. I took out two of the pastor's trash at their house on Tuesday nights. I mowed the church lawn. I mowed the pastor's lawn. I babysitted their kids. I babysitted several other couples' kids. I hung up all the posters on campus and so forth. Why? Because uh, it... You know, I knew I needed that because all men struggle with selfish ambition. You think you've ever struggled with selfish ambition? Right? Haven't we? You know, do you know many sports teams that they're like, I'm really hoping that we can help the other teams win the championship this year? <laughs> 
That's what the Cleveland Browns say. <laughs> you know, thank God he put us in the league so every team will have an easy win. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, right? All right, so ultimately all of God's actions, works, and dealings are to discern, designed to produce that nation or that people and to work in and through it. Biblically, to subdue is to liberate, serve, and empower the world. To what? To manifest his glory. What, what, uh, what, what function does both... Uh, the tabernacle in the wilderness that God called Moses to build in the Temple of Solomon that was dedicated in 1 Kings 8. Of course, the tabernacle of Moses was dedicated in Exodus 40. What are their function in biblical history? That was where the presence of God was. Right. They were a foreshadowing of Christ, the true tabernacle, and the church, the true tabernacle, where the presence of God dwells, Right. So, and the new covenant is spoken of several times, Rome, you know, in Hebrews 8, 22, for example, as a what covenant? A, starts with a B, a better covenant, right? So if God filled the, 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 ta the tabernacle with his glory so completely at the dedication of, of the tabernacle of Moses in Exodus 40 that the priest couldn't stand to minister because the manifest glory of God was so awesome, Right? Same thing happens again in 1 Kings 8 when they're dedicating the Temple of Solomon. And yet we, uh, we see this kind of activity in Acts 2 and Acts 4. Today, 99% of people go to church and what are they expecting to happen? We'll sing a few songs and we'll hear a nice message and Get free lunch. <laughs> and and uh, maybe cheat God on our tithes and offerings. <laughs> no, I don't, you know, what are we? No, I'm just kidding. But what are we? You know, are we expecting the manifest presence of God to be something more awesome than what it was in, the, in, the, in, a, in a lesser covenant? And does that come from Scripture to, to have lower expectations? It comes from the world view of our culture. It comes from the natural mindedness of Western man. Wouldn't it be awesome if we uh, got, if we came to uh, worship the Lord with the expectations that lives are going to be changed, God's presence is going to be so amazing that people are going to be getting on their face and and so forth. And believe me, that happens. I've been been in a number of uh, time periods like that and groups like that. And that's, uh, you know, I, I like that we have some presence of God in our Friday night worship and our Sunday worship and so forth. But there's always more. And until it kind of looks like Exodus 40 and 1 Corinthians 8, don't, don't, uh, don't stop expecting more and working toward more. All right, so let's read some of these scriptures that are, go along with point six. Uh, so where did we get to? The, the lady to the right of Austin, can you, what is your name, ma'am? Sable. Sable? Sable. 
Sabra. S, spell that. S-A-B-R-A. Okay, that's nice. Sabra. What does it mean? Wow, good. Can you read John fifteen six and John fifteen sixteen for us, please? And then uh, that'd be fine. Doesn't matter. Uh, what we, what do we do when we read the scriptures? Each person just says what translation they're reading it out of. And if someone has an alternate translation that they think sheds some light on it, they're free to always free to say it. And then uh, Jeff, why don't you get Matthew four nineteen and then Chris was it? Colin, Colin, why don't you get Mark one Sabra, could you also read John 15, 8? Please. All right, so have any anybody encountered when you're reading the Bible the phrase, like, the glory of God, or what? It, like Paul says, 1 Corinthians 10, uh, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Right? So have you ever, like when you're praying or worshiping, thought about like, Lord, I want to glorify you. And what does that mean? What would that look like? It means you esteem him above yourself. It means that like you put God first and foremost. And he is, like that one song, it's like, you know, you have first place, you know. Yeah, that one. And yeah, I mean, he's first and foremost. There's nothing else that stops your devotion or your love for him. He gets your first fruits of your time, your energy. He gets all the good stuff. Okay. So how could you look at your life uh, how can we look at our life corporately as a community of Christians and find out if we're doing that or not, based on what we just read? I'm asking a question always to go with the scriptures, by the way, just as a clue. <laughs> right. In other words, he's saying the test of discipleship, you know, we're living in a time where they say most evangelical Christians have never shared their faith, let alone ever actually made a disciple. And does Jesus tell us to go out and pray sinners' prayers? No. no. Is it a like a great victory if someone if you're having a Bible study with someone and they invite Christ into their life? Is it? What? You know, it's it's a. I look at it as a step in the right direction. But Jesus didn't go say make sinners' prayers or make decisions. He said make disciples. The proof's going to be, you know, faith uh, without works is, is dead, being by itself. You know, Abraham's faith was completed by his works. When someone has really come under conviction of sin, when someone has really been granted confession and repentance of sin, when they've really uh, turned toward God, 
there will be manifest fruit that comes out of that. Right? Like, for instance, uh, you all know I was a drug addict 45 years ago and so forth. And I, was, uh, I didn't understand the importance of the Lord's Day. So I would often miss church because I was just too lazy to get up in time. And that's a pretty common thing for someone who's just getting started in Christ, isn't it? Right? So, uh, you know, what happens over time is the fruit changes. Right? Because by God's grace, you grow in grace. Right? I can actually remember uh, I, I visited... Uh, my first church when I was first starting to read the Bible and I was, of course, a hippie back in the early 70s and smoking a lot of weed and so forth. And this guy called me at one in the afternoon to follow up and invite me back to the church. And I was like so mad that he called and woke me up. And I was like, who would call someone as early as one in the afternoon? <laughs> no one's up by that time, are they? <laughs> <You know? laughs> I wasn't exactly uh, living a very disciplined life at, the, at that point, you know. Uh, but I was starting to read the Bible, and it eventually bore some fruit. Um, so, uh, John fifteen sixteen, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to bear fruit, and that your fruit should last. Is that remain or last? Endure. So. How do you know, uh, like, if the fruit you're bearing is good fruit? What's that? Yeah, I would say one way is that the fruits of the Spirit are growing in their life. Sure. What's that? Right. If, they're, if, if both you and they are in it for the glory of God. Whether or not it endures. Whether or not it endures is a, is a sign that God's life is in it do you know today uh, uh, various evangelical groups including Campus Crusade for Christ Assemblies of God Church um, Barna the Nazarenes there's a number of organizations that have studied this and they're saying that uh, less than 5% of people who go forward at an altar call uh, because that became a thing, and you know, the altar call idea grew up in the 1800s. It was kind of a brand new idea. And so, like, people think of someone becoming a Christian as they prayed the sinner's prayer at an altar call, but less than 5% of people who do that ever go on to show any evidence that they actually received Christ, such as measured by what we call the five vital signs of life. So, is that what you think Jesus had in mind when he said, Go make disciples of all nations? That's why we talk all the time about moving from a decision-making model of, of evangelism and discipleship to a discipleship-making model, right? Okay. Um, so when God calls an individual, it's always for that larger corporate purpose. How, how many have uh, ever encountered people who uh, aren't very involved with God's people but say, I'm a Christian? Right? So what does that mean? It means their con conversion is not very complete yet. They're, they're not through the starting gates quite fully, really. Would you call that double-mindedness or is that something else? 
Well, it can be a result of that. I mean, I think you'd have to get to know them and figure out what's going on. But, you know, what they call the unchurched church movement is a huge movement today. People who claim they're followers of God but don't want anything to do with the body of Christians. And those two things just can't coexist biblically. Why would people not want anything to do with the body of Christians? What's one reason? Well, first of all, uh, in a performance-based time period, a lot of bodies of Christians aren't necessarily very healthy. And people have, a lot of people have gotten burned therein. But assuming there are healthy places that are grace-based, yeah, it would, it would really get it down to do you really want some depth and, and reality and accountability in your Christian life? Right? Because why? Because the Bible says that whoever wants the light comes to the light, that his deeds might be manifest as being wrought in God. Right? John chapter 3. Right? The truth is, if you want more of Christ, you'll want more of the body of Christ. Now, I, I do understand that we're living in a time where the body of Christ is, we're under deep spirits of religious confusion in our culture, and uh, there's all kind of false cults and all kind of, kind of stuff like that out there. Uh, but a person who really encounters the real, the, you know, Jesus Christ and meets God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through Christ uh, is, uh, is going to want to be in fellowship with other Christians because you can't do what he's called you to do by yourself, can you? Right? Could we bear fruit by ourselves? Just think of just think of how we like a lot of who's been around Grace Christian Fellowship and long enough that you've seen people coming in and kind of making it, getting solid, right? If you've been here more than a year or so, you've probably seen that. But did you ever did you ever notice it's a whole team effort, isn't it? You know, they end up with lots of friends and fellowship and activities and so forth. Nobody, no one person's the, able to do that much of it. All right. Uh, so this statement, this involves the reproduction of children born of his spirit, producing his character, fruit, and works. So uh, one of the things I always say is... Uh, if, you, if you're a fairly healthy person, when you reach puberty, uh, if you don't want to have kids, you're going to have to decide to do something about it, like abstain from sex till marriage or something like that, <laughs> right? Because right? healthy bodies reproduce. The same thing spiritually. Like if you think of yourself as a mature Christian, but you're not reproducing very often, you know, my wife and I, we had a, a period of we decided to, you know, have a family. And uh, this was 30-some uh, years ago. And uh, we had a child every 21 months for, you know, for four in a row, right? Because if you're not doing anything to prevent it, then that's what happens. <laughs> you know? <laughs> right? I mean, unless there's something wrong. Right? 
and some people don't do anything to prevent it till they have five kids, eight kids, 16 kids. <laughs> that, but, but uh, you know, uh, if, you're, if you want that to stop, and so why do we expect that in the spiritual we wouldn't be multiplying? If you, weren't, if you were a married couple wanting to have kids and you were ha having trouble having kids, what would you do? You'd go see a doctor. You'd read. You'd figure out what's wrong here. Right? Yet we are five years in Christ, 10 years in Christ, 20 years in Christ, and we're not expecting that we would be having a new, uh, leading someone to Christ once a year or so. And I'm talking the biblical view of they become a full-out disciple of Jesus Christ. I don't put much stock in, you know, often when I'm having a, you know, I usually have a Bible study with someone for about a year to get them started. And often in, during that process, I'll, I'll have them pray the sinner's prayer three, three to seven times. But I don't put much stock in that. I put stock in the fact that the, that the life of God is starting to grow in them and you can see it. Right? When a baby's born, you can tell if they're healthy or not, right? They're breathing. They're crying. They go to the bathroom. They're hungry. Thirsty. I was going to say, like, actually, nurses, when the baby's first born, they actually have to do an assessment within one minute of the baby being born. Like, respiration, what's the skin color, what's the muscle tone, and that yeah. determines the, the health of the baby. Right. So... You know, uh, so I guess in chat in number six, I just want to stress two points: reproduction of the life of God into other people. Every seed brings forth fruit after its own kind. The Bible has major themes that go from Genesis to Revelation, and you have to learn to look for those and trace them. One of the thing, major themes of the Bible is in Genesis one, God made the plants, God made the the all the swarming things in the ocean, God made all the living things of the land, and and then He made uh, Adam and Eve. And in all four cases, he put the seed in them and they bore fruit after their own kind, right? So if you're a healthy Christian, you will reproduce. And I, I actually don't think you'll even have to go out of your way much to do it. You'll reproduce where you work. You'll reproduce on campus where, you're, where you have class. Well, yeah, I think I think you know God will God will open doors in your immediate environment. So one thing I want to stress is the reproduction thing. The other thing is that it's always God is always desiring to produce a people. And there's no private Lone Ranger Christianity. All right, so let's do number 7. I guess we're at Deanna. All right, so what do we mean by the triune God? Let's take this apart a little bit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right, so tell me a little bit about the Trinity. Uh, What's the classic formulation of the Trinity? There's one God. There's three persons eternally 
manifest as one being, right? God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son are one, one eternal person, right? One eternal being. That's all. Just wanted to be, make sure. There's a lot of non-Trinitarian groups these days. And some of them, and what, ironically, some of them have shows on the Trinity Broadcasting Network. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> so there's several cults that, that, that have shows right on the Trinity Broadcasting Network. Uh, all right, so what does predestined mean? It, it has to do with the doctrine of God being eternal. Remember the attributes of God. God is eternal. What does that mean? This, that, that God, that he's outside and above time. It's not a long, long time. So when the song Amazing Grace says, when we've been there 10,000 years by shining as the sun, that's a nice thing, but it's bad theology. We will actually enter into God's presence in a realm that's above the time-space continuum, that there's, that it, there's timelessness. So God knows the end from the beginning, so he's foreknows and has preordained everything. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated before they did one thing, right? God knows the end from the beginning, and he declares his eternal purposes in the scriptures, right? Okay, so that's important. His holy covenant people, what does holy mean? All right, unblemished, perfect, set apart. Who else said set apart? Somebody else said it over here. Yeah, that, that's actually the most important part of, of, of it. It means set apart to God because how would we know what unblemished is? How would we know what perfect is? Did Jesus say be perfect and stop there? Matthew five forty eight. what did he say? Be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. There's only one source of holiness and one source of perfection, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? So perfection, unblemished, has to be in, it means to be set apart to God. It's, it has to do with relationship to God. Right? Remember in the time of Jesus, Many, most of the Israelites were afraid of lepers and so forth because of all the laws about clean and unclean, right? And then what did Jesus do with lepers? He touched, he put his hands right on them, gave them a hug, said, go show yourself to the priest, <laughs> right? Because he had holiness in himself as God. He was God. And his holiness, it, you know, we... So many Christians today are kind of afraid of the world instead of understanding God is more powerful than the world. You know, there's, there's you know, one of the most uh, fun times I ever had leading someone to Christ, there was a, a young man who was vice president of the gay union in Bowling Green, and he, uh, a couple guys in our fellowship met him, and he was kind of on the... That was kind of when the pushing the radical feminine, you know, uh, radical homosexual agenda was a newer thing and, and so forth. And a couple of the guys in our fellowship befriended him. And, uh, um, you know, and uh, I met him a few times. But I didn't know him that well yet, but some of the other guys knew him a little better. And uh, then he got in a car accident. 
and I was very busy and I, I think it was three or four days before I got to the hospital to see him. But by the time I went to see him, over 30 guys from our campus ministry had been to see him. And I brought a Bible with me and gave it to him and uh, he, and he said, uh, you know, thank you. And we started talking and, and uh, he said, you know, everybody from the fellowship has been here to see me already. And I said, wow, that's great. And, uh, and then we started talking about his homosexual friends. He said, none of them have been here to see me. And he, I ended up praying with him to receive Christ before I left that day. So, and what's that? He ended up being a member of our church. So, you know, but, you know, most people are, are kind of afraid of ministering to lost worldly people and so forth. I like to share the gospel in bars myself. <laughs> Although one time I was sharing the gospel with my youngest daughter at the U, at UD ghetto where they have the part, you, you know, they... If you don't know UD, what they call the ghetto is the student ghetto where they party uh, pretty deeply. And we we shared uh, the ghetto with, we shared the gospel with this guy that really came under the power of the spirit a lot and so forth. But then, uh, uh, you know, we gave him a card and said, I'd "Like to talk to you more and everything." But when he left, my my daughter goes, "I bet he won't remember that we talked to him tomorrow because <laughs> he he was that trash." So yeah, you, you have to take that with a grain of salt. I don't I don't know that he could remember it. Okay. So let's go on to uh, talking about our opponents. Because remember, we want to we understand that if the kingdom of God's a reality, there's going to be a clash of kingdoms. So who are the opponents I've listed there? Somebody. Satan has angels and demons. Okay, so what is, why do we say angels and demons? Yeah, because in the Bible, the, Satan is a type of angel. Now... Should we be really scared of Satan? What? Uh, somebody tell me a little bit about Satan in the Bible. Yeah, he was Lucifer. He was one of the archangels. But he's not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. He's not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. He doesn't know everything, and he's not everywhere at once. You always hear Christians say, Satan's been really bothering me lately, and I always say, I doubt if Satan's ever heard of you. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he's never heard of me. I mean, I'm too small a player, right? So uh, it's a very important thing to understand if you're a Christian is that there is a Satan, the, the, the warfare we have is very real, but he is opposite God in what way? Character and purpose. But he's not opposite God in, the, uh, in the, what you would call the non-communicable attributes of God. Remember in theology, what do we mean by communicable and non-communicable attributes of God? Sam Chen Poon, tell us what, what is the difference, what is, do we mean by communicable and non-communicable attributes of God? Like what? Give us some examples. Make that more clear, please. Yeah, non-communicable are the one, the attributes of God that we as people can't 
grow in or catch. Like Jeff's pretty smart guy, one of the smartest guys I know, both in engineering and the Bible. Are you making any progress toward being omniscient, Jeff? <laughs> right? Now, there's probably a lot of teenagers who think they're omniscient, <laughs> especially around, right, around age 14, but, but, uh, but not so much, right? All right. Uh, you know, oh, who? Daniel, you're famous for your driving abilities. <laughs> are, are you making any uh, progress toward being omnipresent? <laughs> right, Brad, Brad, you're famous for working out and getting it. Are you zeroing in on being omnipotent? No. <laughs> What's that? I'm you haven't been bench pressing any galaxies or anything lately, have you? <laughs> right, okay, so. The non, in theology, the non-communicable attributes of God are those characteristics of God that we as people can't catch because they belong to his divinity. Right? Now, what about love? Can, people, can you as a Christian grow in sanctification and become more loving? Not perfectly, but you could be a lot more loving than you used to be. Some of you already are. <laughs> right? Right? What's that? Right, because they're made in the image of God. Even a lost person still has, like Jesus said, even the Gentiles greet one another and so forth, right? Right, so, all right, so let's, let's plug that back into this. So Satan is opposite God in purpose, but not in power, knowledge, wisdom. He's, so what ultimately, even his opposition against God ends up doing what? It ends up glorifying God and doing God's purpose, although that's not his goal, right? You know, he thought it was going to be his hour of triumph at the cross, wasn't it, didn't he? But was it? No. That's, that's my point. All right, so what's, uh, what's, what's one characteristic of, say, demons that angels don't have in the Bible? What's that? What do you mean? Uh, like All right, so maybe you, should, you make your terminology more biblical because possession is not actually a biblical term. Right. Um, so like, um, yeah. Right. So. Normally, satanic angels do not desire to indwell people, whereas satanic demons do. But the word, you know, the word possession, if we don't know this by now, like you should be more careful with that. You should know this by now. Uh, you know, there, uh, despite the fact that there are people who are what's called King James-only Christians who believe that's the only good translation and so forth, there were several important mistakes in the King James Bible, one, some of which were paid for by King James, like the... The epistle to James was because King James said, you got to come back with someone named James. So they changed all the Jacobs of the New Testament to Jameses, right? Because they wanted a James. There's, okay, in, in Ephesians 4, 11, he, they purposely translated it as pastor 
when the Greek word poimen there in, in the other 16 places it appears in the New Testament is translated shepherd. Why did they translate it as pastor? King James paid for that. He wanted that mistranslation. Why? Right, because he wanted to stop the 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 restoration of the church in in so that the he could uphold the Church of England. He wanted you thinking of a pastor as a professional clergy guy that went his qualifications were seminary and being ordained through the Church of England or the Roman Catholic Church or whatever. He didn't want to, you to start thinking God raises up shepherds of his people and how you know him is they protect the sheep from wolves and they know the sheep by name and they care for the sheep. He didn't want the, 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 the New Testament ministry of, of a presbytery or a, an eldership starting to be restored. He was trying to stop the Reformation. And that's why the Greek diamonazai got translated demon-possessed, but it means indwelt by demons. It, there's no such thing as demon possession. There's people who have demons inside them, and those demons are influencing them. But whether you're possessed or not is belongs to the branch of theology called soteriology, the doctrines of conversion and salvation. If you're born again, Christian, you belong to who? God. If you're not a born-again Christian, you belong to who? You're of your father, the devil, Jesus said, right? To those who weren't believing in him. So a non-Christian could have very few demons. What if they grew up in a godly family and they've mostly lived a moral life and so forth? Or they could have as many demons as Adolf Hitler. But it's not a matter of the demons owning them. It's a matter of if the demons indwell them and, and are empowering them. And that's important to know because the basis for casting out demons is a legal basis. It's like, remember when the woman said uh, to Jesus, the, the Syrophoenician woman, Lord, my daughter is cruelly, it should be translated demonized. What did Jesus say to her? It's not allowed to take the children's bread and give it to dogs. Now, he, like today, we think a, we use that word, like if someone calls someone a dog, that would be a very crass, unkind thing to say because it would mean they're not attractive. But in Jesus' day, that meant that was an unclean animal you weren't allowed to eat. He's saying she's not part of the covenant people of God. And therefore, she doesn't get the things that belong to the covenant people of God. They're the children of God's inheritance. But what does she say? Right. So she actually, so God, by the Father, by the Holy Spirit, has already revealed to her who Christ is. And she knows he's good. See, unbelievers think God is like a cosmic killjoy and he's going to be no fun at all. And that's why they're running from God. But she says, even, you know, you know she basically makes a, a positive statement of faith that God is good. And Jesus says, woman, great is your faith. He recognizes, oh, she's a true daughter of Abraham, even though she's not biologically descended. He had already defined in several other places, like John 8, the true daughters of Abraham are who? The people who God has given faith. God grants faith. He's the initiate author and the, and the fulfiller of our faith, right? So he realizes, oh, my father gave this lady faith. And so he cast the demons out of her. Out of her daughter, that is. Right? Because the, king, the kingdom is a legal realm. All kingdoms are legal realms. 
And if you belong to God through a valid new birth, and you and you you know whoever has the Son has the Father, whoever doesn't have the Son does not have the Father. If you belong to God, then you have the right to have demons cast out of you. All right. So that's uh, and that's really what if you if you go through there in the Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There are seven dramatic incidents of Jesus casting demons out. I'd encourage you to read all seven of them in detail. John, there's no incidents of Jesus casting demons out. Why? We've covered this before. Why are there no incidents of Jesus casting demons out in the Gospel of John? Or in 1 John's epistle or in Revelation? Well, John, remember, is uh, bringing out different aspects of Christ, and he's emphasizing Jesus' cosmic victory over all evil, and over who, so he called Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world three times in the Gospel of John, and says that he's been cast out. First John says that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil of Satan. So John is emphasizing Jesus' power over all the kingdom of Satan. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the three synoptic Gospels, which hopefully we all know why we call them that by now, because we've covered, we won't review that. We've covered that a lot of times. Uh, the three synoptic Gospels uh, emphasize Jesus' victory over the demons, right? So they give us seven dramatic encounters with uh, demons. But uh, Byron, read us the last uh, paragraph of, say, Matthew 4. What's that? Matthew chapter 4. Uh, wherever a paragraph starts, I, I'll get, be there in a minute, but they usually have a, something to indicate a paragraph to a minute. Penny. That's about right, yeah. And read the rest of the, uh, yeah, start in 23 and read the rest of the paragraph. All right, so, again, the King James there says possessed with demons. That's a very bad translation, to be honest. Uh, what uh, Young's literal translation says something like demonized. New American Standard says demoni demoniacs. Uh, what does ESV say there, by the way? Demon oppressed. Demon oppressed. Because the ESV is kind of more trying to correct that mistake, but they're also more natural-minded. So the truth is, it, mean, it means indwelt by demons, the Greek. Okay, now, um, trying to uh, see where, oops. Let's go to, say, Matthew 8.
All right. Uh, Chris, you came in late, so read Matthew 8, 16 through um, 18. Matthew eight sixteen through eighteen. No, that's good. You're good. I'm, I'm at 17. My bad. Um, so, again, demon possessed is a bad translation there. Jonathan, uh, give us uh, same chapter. Start in verse 28 of the same chapter. And let's read down to the end of the chapter real quick. Uh, I don't have it on you, but... Oh, give, it, give, give me your phone or something. Or just read it yourself, Chris. Uh, start in verse 28, read the rest of the chapter. Now that's pretty, that's one of the more seven dramatic accounts. But uh, the first scripture you read, who read before you? Who read the previous one? Just be, from Matthew four. Uh, Byron did. So those Matthew four and Matthew eight bring out that there were crowds of people that Jesus cast demons out of hundreds, right? So today Christians don't do that in, but only in the West. Christians do that in in Africa. Christians do it in Central America. Christians do it in South America. Christians do it in Indonesia and in, even in communist China. Why do they? Why do American Christians not do it? Because we have a natural-minded worldview that has brainwashed us to not believe the scripture straightforward. Right? And it's not because they're more backward in South America or Central America or Africa. It's because they don't have, they're not brainwashed as, as babies in a skeptical anti-supernatural worldview. Simple as that. All right, so uh, get, going back to point seven, uh, the, the next enemy is the people, the nations and rulers of this age who persecute his people. So that's often referred to as what? The world and the systems. Yeah, the world or the world system or the kingdoms of this world, that, that kind of thing, right? In 1 John, he says, don't love the world, right? The, what are some of the things he lists as loving the world? 1 John chapter 2, let's say. 
again, you can cheat. You can, you can read the, you can turn to it. I gave you the reference. I look at around verse fourteen. You say it again. Pride. Yeah, the the boastful pride of life, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the lust and the boastful pride of life. That's just one of the Bible's many lists of what it means to be worldly. Right? Do you ever see like two people get together and they're they're kind of. Uh, Maybe depending on how much social skill or tact they have, they might be uh, better at, at hiding or not. But what they're basically doing is outsizing each other up. Like, I can bench press more than you can, right? Or whatever, right? What is that? That's the boastful pride of life, right? My dad could take your dad. <laughs> little kids do that, do that, right? My big brother could take you, you know. You ever seen any little kids do that? What, remember the disciples? When uh, Jesus, they were they're walking along and they're arguing what? Who's the greatest? <laughs> it's too bad uh, Sam Moante and and uh, those guys aren't here tonight. When uh, when we when we first got is Logan here? No, no. When we first got Logan and Sam Moante and everything like that, uh, they were. Let me think. They uh, Sam was fifth grade and and the rest of those guys were eighth grade. And they used to fight about who was the greatest, like all the time. <laughs> That's all. I used to. It used to drive me nuts. And, I, and uh, Edwin's dad, Simon, who so, most of you know Simon by now, he, he used to say, "Don't worry, they're just fourteen. They'll, they'll grow out of it." I'm like, I, they would like fight over who gets to ride in the front seat and, and uh, who want, who was everything, who was cooler, right? What do you think, like, winning the championship's about? Right. Are the eyes of man ever satisfied, according to Scripture? No. Yeah. The lust of the eyes. All right, so that's uh, the world system. Get, somebody give me a, when we say the people uh, of the world, I'm, we'll just end up with finishing point seven, I think. Or we'll probably read point eight and then quit. Uh, what, what's a good definition of the world system? I'll give it to, to Jeff. You probably have, can do this. Jeff Burks. We'll step back and give like a broad picture definition. Where does the world sister system come from? The world system is a, is the the collection of sinful natures living together in a culture, creating a culture energized by the force of sin and its values and its agendas and goals, right? And energized by Satan and his demons. That's what the world system's all about, right? Like the zeitgeist or whatever? Yeah, zeitgeist is a good word for that. You Tell us what zeitgeist means. Yeah, when we're talking about one of the demonic things about American culture is this natural-minded worldview, that's part of the zeitgeist of America. There's a French word for it. Does anyone know what that word is? Milieu. Okay. Um, it's like the spirit of the age, right? It's the culture. But it's the culture of man warring against God and his kingdom. Now, how, what, what particular uh, ungodly things are manifested 
varies by subculture somewhat, right? It's going to have some common characteristics, right? Because all people have the same, are all made in the image of God. That image of God has been twisted by sin. And sin creates the same desires in all fallen people, right? And so that culture, for instance, most cultures of the world have been oppressive to women. You know, like if you, a lot of like Mexican culture and so forth, the whole machismo thing can be very oppressive to women, right? You know that firsthand, right? From your Spanish upbringing. So lots of cultures are like oppressive to women, aren't they? In fact, most of the cultures in the history of mankind have shared that characteristic. However, like African culture is very matriarchal. Right? So, you know, there's, so the cultures can vary a little bit in what direction the sin nature of it takes, but mostly it has the common ingredients. So that's kind of important for us to know because, you know, like when you're discipling someone, a lot of you guys are already discipling younger Christians. Um, if you're discipling a younger Christian, you know, what do they say about the children of Israel as they were traveling from Egypt uh, through the wilderness for 40 years? What was God trying to do? He had to get Egypt out of the Israelites, right? So, you know, one of the things that I'm always trying to do is I'm trying to get America out of the American Christians. I'm trying to get Kenya out of the Kenyan Christians. Not necessarily everything about their culture, but those parts that aren't compatible with Christ, of which there's lots, right? And we're called to build a kingdom culture. Most Christians today have lowered the goals of Christianity to making decisions and making disciples, but that's just the start of building uh, an alternate, a city set on a hill we're supposed to be a city within the cities, right? We're supposed to have our own economics, our own businesses, our own everything. We're supposed to have a way of life within the world's way of life that's an alternate, alternative culture. We're called to be, you know, some of you are, most of you probably aren't old enough to remember the 60s, but in the 60s, <laughs> Kyle, how were you? You were doing pretty well in the 60s, right? <laughs> Uh, Josiah and I used to hang in the 60s, no. Um, but in the 60s, we were trying to build a counterculture, we thought. But we left out certain things, like we didn't have any doctrine of man's sin nature, nor any doctrine of the atonement, or how to cha change people from the root out, right? So we basically were what? We were basically on a fool's errand. You know, it was funny some of the some of the communes that lots of my friends lived in and stuff they were they were more hateful to each other than, than anywhere you've ever been they they because apart from Christ you can't really manifest the, the fruit of love right all right where are we so what's the last one ourselves why is that our what tell me something about that John Bradbury you're an expert on that <laughs> yeah and so uh go ahead john luke 
Yeah, so sometimes in, in, in uh, particular New Testament epistles, it's called the flesh. Uh, in the Greek, there's soma and sarks, and it's sarks. I don't have time to get into all that, but um, he's not saying necessarily bodily desires are evil, uh, which has become kind of a evangelical thing, like retreat from, what's that? Like, yeah, asceticism and so forth. But um, we tend to focus in sin nature on kind of the shallow things. What are some of the deepest things of our sin nature? Yeah, the deepest issue is that we're running from God. God, there's none who seeks for God, no, not one. And we're trying to be our own God. And ultimately, salvation is to be set free from the desire to be your own God and have Christ be your God. Right? All right, so that's... Um, so let's just read... Uh, uh, Josh, you want to read number eight? We, Let's, let's just read one more, and we'll uh, quit there. All right, so one last question. What do we mean by the kingdom people are supposed to be a separate race? Boy, that sounds kind of politically incorrect today. Go ahead, John Luke. Okay. Okay. Go. Go back. You know, read that. Read. Read the reverse negative. Right, so remember all the points we made about, very good, that was much better, Morgan. The, the points we made about one regal head and so forth. So there's ultimately two races of people in the earth. There's those who are born of Adam and have not been reborn in Christ and those who have been reborn in Christ. That's it. And, you know, the reason, you know, people come into our church and they go, geez, you're like 40% black and 5 or 6% international and you have all these different ages and socioeconomic backgrounds and so forth why is that important because today less than seven percent of american churches are, are are integrated and that is the number one denial of the gospel there is in the new testament there were no churches that weren't significantly integrated there was not such a thing and it's one thing if we like had a friendship with a black church and had a uh common meeting that'd be a step in the right direction but the reason our church is so interracial and, and socioeconomically so diverse and and uh, people from Taiwan Korea Singapore uh, American blacks African blacks uh, you know so forth uh, people who grew up in inner city public schools people who are getting doctorates that that's absolutely essential that's the most important issue of the universe right now Look what's in the news all the time, all the hatred and tension in our culture. Because fallen men 
You know, the sociologists actually call Sunday morning the most segregated hour in America. That's if you go ask the sociology teachers at this campus, because almost no churches are significantly integrated. I remember the first time, you know, we have a lot of mixed couples in our church. The first time I did a black and white wedding, I got a call from the parents. And I, I, I'm such an ordinary guy. They, they, were, they were like, I can't believe as a Christian pastor you're letting this happen. So I pretended I didn't know what they were upset about. <laughs> I said, well, Falake really loves the Lord and Dave really loves the Lord. So what's the problem? <laughs> I pretended I didn't know what their problem, you know, because eventually they backed down and saw that the pro they were the problem. They're, they're, they were racist, and they were they were so called Christians who were racist, and and actually where I was able to help them come to repentance, and they uh, were very blessed the wedding, and and uh, it was a great wedding, and they're a great Christian couple, and they've been married 35, 40 years now. So you know if we can't um, there there are the if you study the nature of the sin nature, the sin nature tells us that. People who are under the power of sin are at enmity with three things. God, themselves, and other people. Right? All people who've not been redeemed in Christ, who've not become truly born again, are at, they're at enmity. They're, they're hostile to God. They're actually hostile to themselves. Why do you think people smoke and drink and everything else to kill themselves to death? Because the Bible says those who hate wisdom love death. People who don't know Christ are actually, uh, li they'll live more reckless. Because they have this contradictory thing going on inside themselves. Right? So, and, you know, they hate each other over every reason possible. So the number one most important thing Jesus gave us is he said, By this will all men know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. I would not attend a church that's not significantly integrated. I wouldn't even go. I think it's a denial of the gospel, and I think it's, it's that serious of an issue. It's the number one issue of our times. Because, you know, the federal government passes laws that makes blacks and whites go to school together, go to work together, and so forth, but when blacks and whites have a choice on Sunday mornings, they go to separate churches. And that is a denial of Christ. Because we are one family, one body, one people in Jesus Christ. And I'm not going to be a part of a church that, that's not practically living that. I would not do that. Because there would, in my opinion, there would be no point of the church even existing. They would, they would be getting very little done, actually. I think it's that serious of an issue. I think it's the most important issue going forward in the next century. So let's just end with that. <laughs> uh, on Vash, why don't you close us in prayer?